Last week, a chemical weapons attack in a Syrian town killed more than 70 men, women, and children. And as a result, the Trump administration took action. Tonight I ordered a targeted military strike on the airfield in Syria from where the chemical attack was launched. That strike by the U.S. military came via 59 Tomahawk cruise missiles launched from two Navy destroyers in the Mediterranean and targeted at a Syrian military airfield. The attack was quickly denounced by Syria and by Russia, a country that is an ally of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. Now, since the attack, many, many questions have come up about Trump's foreign policy approach. Some have praised and some have criticized the administration's quick decision to act. Others are struck by our increasingly hostile stance toward Russia. But before we delve into those subjects, there are some fundamental questions we'll answer about what constitutes an act of war, about whether a president has the authority to unilaterally wage war, and perhaps most critically, what happens next if he does? Allison Michaels, and this is Can He Do That?, a podcast exploring the powers and limitations of the American presidency. Now, this week, to help us navigate this developing story, we have national security reporter Dan Lamoth on the show. Dan anchors our blog called Checkpoint, and he spent time as a reporter embedded with troops in Afghanistan. Dan, thank you so much for being here. Sure. Glad to. So, Dan, can you just update us on what we've seen this past week? You know, what developments have, have occurred in this story since since the military strike? So I think the most important thing that has come out this week is is both the Trump administration and also Russia trying to reframe this attack to their own ends, really on both sides. So on the American side, they're trying to very narrow, narrowly define this as a strike that was necessary based on al-Assad not following an agreement that he reached in 2013. Putin on the other side, on Russia, and really the Kremlin in general, uh, has said that, sure, chemical weapons were probably used, but you don't know for sure that Assad's regime was a part of it. And uh, the United States has, uh, at this point, pushed back quite hard on that. So, Dan, as a defense reporter, were you surprised by the decision to launch strikes against Syria? Was this something that you would have expected based on the Trump administration's previously stated approach to foreign policy? I was not surprised at all, uh, mostly based on Trump's rhetoric in the first couple days after this attack occurred. He seemed to be tremendously affected by it. He seemed to take it somewhat personally. And really, I think just the visuals from it, the gasping civilians in Syria, the dead women and children, all of that, I think, really seemed to affect him. And I think, by all accounts, he looks pretty genuine with that. As we're having this conversation, one story is developing, which is that the U.S. dropped what I believe is actually the second largest non-nuclear bomb ever used in Afghanistan, correct me on that if I'm wrong, on a massive Islamic State tunnel complex in this mountainous area. Can you explain whether or not this is significant and what the president's role may or may not have been here? Sure. First of all, by weight, it is not the largest. By explosive yield, it, it probably is. It sounds like in this case, the idea was to take out a system of tunnels that probably weren't deep underground that ISIS has been using as a headquarters. Uh, and not, not unlike the beginning of the Afghanistan war, 
the Taliban and others have used these tunnels in eastern Afghanistan for years as a headquarters, a place to hide, a place to work from. So in terms of the president's role here, is this something that the president would have had to sign off on? We don't have a lot of clarity on that yet, but my best guess would be no. The reason being this was not any sort of nuclear ammunition. This was uh, something that was strictly a conventional weapon. The general on the ground there, General John Nicholson, has a great deal of latitude on how he wants to prosecute the war. Okay, so that's what's going on in terms of military action this week. But really the question I'm trying to get at in regards to both of these events, both Syria and what we saw in Afghanistan, is where exactly does the president's power to wage war begin and end? Essentially, what does the Constitution say about whether or not a president can act unilaterally? So we turn to Nora Bensahel for some answers. Nora is a distinguished scholar in residence at American University's School of International Service. Well, the Article One of the Constitution is what gives Congress its powers, and it gives Congress the power to declare war. But Article Two, which is what spells out the powers for the president, includes designating him as the commander-in-chief, which enables him to give orders towards military forces. So there's always been a back and forth throughout U.S. history between the legislative branch and the executive branch about how those two things go together, and each tends to assert its authority over the other without convincing the other one of that. The framers seemingly intended, based on the Constitution, for, for declarations of war, for formal declarations of war to go through Congress and that the president should really kind of only act on his own in the case of true emergency. That kind of changed after President Harry Truman bypassed Congress to go to war in Korea. Can you speak a little bit about that and how that action kind of changed future presidents' approaches to war? Well, I think part of it is that the nature of war has, has changed. I mean, in, in the time when the Constitution was written, it was kind of inconceivable that you could mobilize an army, particularly a large one for a conflict, without having some sort of congressional authority and particularly congressional funding, because, you know, it, it took a lot of resources and a lot of effort to build an army out of scratch, because we didn't maintain a large standing army. What Truman did uh, in Korea really was the first war of the Cold War period, and it seemed to have a kind of different character. We had maintained a fairly large military force after World War II. We still had much more of a military structure in place, and so it was possible for the president to do that at that time. If we want to fast forward a little bit from the Korean War if we move forward to 1973, we, we get something in place called the War Powers Act. Can you explain what that is and how that came to be? It was a reaction to the fact that Vietnam was a very unpopular war. And what the War Powers Act did uh, was that uh, it was passed by past Congress. It required that the president notify Congress within 48 hours of any military action. And in particular, it uh, forbidden military forces from staying deployed in an operation for more than 60 days without either an authorization for the use of military force, an act of Congress, or a formal declaration of war by Congress. That has been in place since 1973. No president has ever accepted it as legitimate. In fact, President Nixon vetoed it. It passed because Congress overrode his veto. But ever since then, every president of, of you know both Democrats and Republicans have claimed that the War Powers Act is an unconstitutional limit on the commander-in-chief's authority to use military force. Most presidents have complied with uh, the requirement to notify Congress, but they do so. They don't say that when they notify Congress, they've done so about 120 times since it was passed. They don't say they are doing it according to the 
War Powers Act. They say they are doing it pursuant to the War Powers Act. And while that may not sound like a big difference to you or me, it does have a different legal meaning, and it, it is a rejection of the requirement to do it. It basically says, I'm telling you anyway, even though I do not believe I am required to under the War Powers Act. It seems like in modern history, presidents rarely seek approval from Congress when it comes to acts of war. So you're, within this framework, is that legal? Is it legal for a president to go ahead and do that? Well, there have been two uh, very notable ones uh, since September 11th. Uh, you know, one uh, relatively uh, soon after the September 11th attacks, Congress passed an authorization for the use of military force that covered military operations against al-Qaeda as those responsible for the 9-11 attacks. And that authorization, since it didn't have a date by which it ended, has been used by presidents from uh, President Bush through Obama to justify uh, counterterrorism strikes. The other big one, of course, was the 2002 vote on authorizing the war against Iraq. And that was ended up being such a, a divisive vote. Uh, you know, it passed 52 to 48. And in particular, because that war turned out to be quite unpopular, it wasn't unpopular in 2003, but it became more unpopular as time went by. Congress has been extraordinarily reluctant to authorize the use of military force in any new way, to either you know, do an authorization for the use of military force, AUMF, or to officially declare war, because they saw that it can be politically risky. That is so interesting. So you're essentially saying, um, in one way or another, that because Congress doesn't want to necessarily get, you know, face political blowback for making a decision about going into war, they're kind of relinquishing their duty to kind of be a system of checks and balances against the president, right? I mean, are the checks and balances in the U.S. system failing at this point when it comes to presidents engaging in acts of war? And it's always been very unclear because the Constitution gives different powers to both the president and to the legislative branch. Um, this issue has come before the courts before, right? You know, when you usually have a constitutional issues like that, you think the courts can resolve it. There have been a number of cases that have been taken to court, but so far the courts that have ruled on this uh, have said basically that this is not a judicial issue, this is a political issue. You know, as I said, this tension is, is built into the system. The courts don't seem to want to resolve it, and we seem to muddle through. It makes it very difficult to answer the question, is this legal or isn't it? Because both parts of the government are exercising their legal rights under the Constitution. To be clear, the president does have sole authority to launch a nuclear weapon. Is that right? Is there anything Pentagon officials or anyone can or anybody else can do to intervene once the president has made this decision? Legally, no. If anybody in the military chain of command believes that they are being given an illegal order, something that is seen as a, a clear violation of principles that are laid out in the Uniform Code of Military Justice, they are required to disobey it. You know, if, if someone believed that we were launching a nuclear weapon at innocent civilians that had nothing to do with any act of war against the United States, People in the military chain of command, the military officers, could refuse that order as an illegal order. If we are in some sort of conflict, if a nuclear weapon is you know, being targeted at a, a clear U.S. adversary, uh, the military chain of command must follow the commander-in-chief's orders. So can we for one second just go back to the AUMF? Is it something that only applies when terrorism is involved? Does it only apply when we are under threat? Does it apply from a humanitarian perspective? Is, does there have to be certain kinds of justifications for us to be able to you know, enact the AUMF? 
No, because the text of every authorization for the use of military force is different, so it can say whatever Congress wants it to say. You know, the, the one in, in, that was adopted in 2001 did talk about al-Qaeda and terrorist attacks. Al-Qaeda, as it was constituted in 2001, doesn't exist today, but, you know, many of the groups that we are fighting are splinter organizations from it, and that's why presidents have claimed, and, and really members of Congress haven't challenged this too seriously, that that AUMF still applies because that's how that particular one was written. You know, there was a debate with the recent airstrike against Syria about, well, would that be covered under the 2001 AUMF? And it's pretty clear that it wouldn't be um, because it was not directed to support counterterrorism, counterterrorist activities, right? It was a strike against the Syrian regime as a punishment for having used chemical weapons. That's a very different situation. The way that that authorization was written wouldn't necessarily apply here. But then again, it, at least so far, it seems to be a series of one-off strikes. If this turned into a longer campaign, again, the other part of the War Powers Act is where forces would be staying more than 60 days. That's what would trigger the requirement for a new AUMF. So then just to kind of summarize, legally, I guess my final question really to you is legally, how far can Trump take this then? You know, it's it's not clear what the constraint on him would really be. I mean, the ultimate power of Congress to constrain the action of the president is a very blunt one, but it has to do with funding for the military forces. If Congress really believes that the president, any president, is not pursuing the correct policy, the president has been ignoring the War Powers Act and so on, the one power it is very clear that they have is they can cut off funding for the military and therefore constrain the president's ability to use it. That, of course, is a, you know, as I said, that's a very blunt tool. That is not something they're going to do except in the most extreme situations. So you spoke a little bit to the speed with which President Trump reacted in this particular case. How has his approach to this decision differed from what we've seen from other administrations? He did not seek congressional approval whatsoever. At minimum, you're going to notify them, and you're going to notify them in advance. Best case scenario, at least according to Constitution and sort of the scholar's way of looking at it, you would have had an actual debate about what kind of warfare you would be waging and whether it was worth it and what would be second and third order effects be. And basically, as a nation, are we really aware of what we're getting into? So why didn't Donald Trump take that approach? I mean, from the outside looking in, I think he wanted to act fast. Uh, I think he felt like he didn't have to. I think he felt like the precedent was there under which they didn't need to. And I think the other piece of this is they they did want some element of surprise. They kind of knew a lot based on everything that went on in 2013 about what Assad had. Uh, There was pretty good intelligence on where these chemical weapons were. And I think he wanted to do something quick. And the open question becomes, how much political gain did he get out of this? And how much did that factor into his greater calculus about what to do? Yeah. So according to Trump, one thing that factored into his greater calculus, according to the first major interview that he's given since ordering the strike, is that President Obama's failure to act in Syria is something that, you know, really factored into this. Can you explain what happened in 2013 uh, after a chemical weapons attack in Syria by Assad and how that decision was made and, and what the aftermath of that looked like? So back then you had a very ugly, much uglier than this chemical weapons attack. 
you had one, I believe it was August of 2013, that killed, based on a U.S. estimate I saw, well in excess of 1,500 people. That after already two years at that time of civil war and Assad killing civilians in his own country really kind of prompted an international discussion, international outcry, and the president say a red line has been drawn. And, And it had been coming up you know, for a while then, like what would be too far for Assad? So Obama got himself into a situation where he said red line and then it was like, okay, red line's been crossed. What are you going to do about it? And Obama walked pretty much, I think, as far up to calling some sort of strike as he could, then backed off, said, I want this to go through Congress. I want want this to be debated. I want basically a more textbook definition of what war should be. What happened to that debate in Congress? And what was the eventual outcome? Like, why did we not actually take action in Syria? We came up with a a deal with the Russians, right? It was a deal with the Russians. It was in a deal with the Assad regime. And the Assad regime promised to get rid of specific chemical weapons. Uh, The Russians promised to oversee that. It was considered a success. It was considered basically a best case scenario for a very short period of time. But in the middle of this, you still saw these other chemical weapons attacks with chlorine, which is not as deadly and not as problematic as something like sarin, but still a horrible irritant. Still, you know, it spreads, you know, basically terror because you're at the time, if you're on the ground, you don't really know what you're breathing. You just know it hurts. And nothing ever was really as clean cut as it was initially uh, sold to be. I spoke with uh, Lauren Shulman, who uh, worked in the Obama Pentagon and worked in the Obama National Security Council. She's now over with the Center for New American Security, which is a think tank in downtown Washington. When, when you look at the decision-making that may have taken place, as you compare it back to 2013, when we kind of came up to the last potential strikes in Syria, what looks different spe- uh, specifically, besides for the fact there was no notification? So, in, you're right. In 2013, they ultimately decided to go to the Hill and say, we want to get congressional authorization before we use force in Syria uh, due to the chemical weapons used by the Assad regime. This time, they notified some members of Congress. Uh, They are going to be providing briefings over the coming weeks. Uh, But what I think is really different is the fact that there's a big political difference. You see Senator Marco Rubio, who was very much against the 2013 strikes, being very much in favor of them, them, very much in favor of them under President Trump. Um, You see, not, not only in Congress, but in the American people, a big swing between Republicans who were against the strikes, possibility of strikes in 2013, and being very much in favor of them now. But what's uh, what is a bit different also is the fact that um, President Obama decided to go to Congress in 2013 because he was thought it was an important precedent for him to be setting, and he also was think, very cognizant of what the next presidential administration may face and how what kind of precedent he's setting for them. This president 
didn't go to them at all. And I think he learned the lesson from President Obama is that Congress doesn't want to have these debates. They are happy to talk about the need for AUMFs. They're happy to sort of debate whether or not we should re- reopen AUMF. They are they are happy to you know make this a political point of some kind, but they don't really want the president to go to them and say, "Do you, are you okay with me using force in this very limited way?" So when I look at this, and I also see sort of tension and ratchet up with North Korea. You know, the, the, I think the question would be, okay, that that wouldn't necessarily be a limited situation if that get goes. Poorly. So there's actually some, some interesting comparisons between this Syria strike and what could be a possible intervention in North Korea, which I, I can't predict the future, but it does seem as though we're going into risky territory here. And I, I think that's something that Congress needs to worry about and pay attention to is, you know, we say this is a limited strike, but the possibility of escalation in ways that we can't predict at all is huge. Same problem in North Korea in that we may say that we want to take a preemptive or preventative strike against North Korea to prevent a nuclear test or prevent any other kind of military action. Well, it's nice that we say that it's going to be limited, but they get a vote there in terms of how they are willing to respond. And before Congress sort of cheerleads us over the line of intervening in North Korea, it needs to think about this is not likely going to be a small short-term action. This is going to be something that is going to have a lot of consequences for our allies in the region. It's going to have a lot of consequences for U.S. forces. It's going to be, frankly, probably incredibly expensive and risky for American personnel. These may be a vital national security interest, but it's something that's really worthy of debate. What, if anything, do you think limits the president at this point when it comes to Syria writ large and really Russia as well? So you can break it down into four buckets that don't really matter unless audiences care. So domestic law, international law, Congress, and the American people. Basically, none of those buckets are really referees to say that, you know, you know, you can't do this. Or even if they do say it, they don't necessarily have a ton of leverage to say you can't do this, at least not immediately. But where, for instance, on the congressional and domestic law side, uh, if the president decides to continue this intervention or broaden it or use force elsewhere without congressional authorization, Congress can say, we're not going to pay for that. Um, they, they can also pass a law to say stop, uh, and the president would need to listen to that. From an international perspective, again, you know, there's the U.S. reputation within the U.N. Security Council, the international legal basis for that. Like, that matters, I think, to some narrow part of the administration. But I don't think they care a whole lot, clearly, since they don't really have a good international legal basis. Uh, where they will care is if other states start to say, we don't want to help you do this, or we are going to actively work against you in the case of Russia if you intervene in Syria further, or we are going to pull out of some of our other partnerships with you in Afghanistan or Iraq or in Syria, in Syria counter ISIS if you don't start uh, justifying your actions in a way that we find to be palatable. So while there's not somebody who can say, stop, and the president will stop probably immediately. All of these are pressures that he needs to be worried about, um, as well as on the American people. You see his supporters being really against this action that he took in Syria. So, Dan, based on Trump's reaction to Syria's use of chemical weapons here, do you gather that this is a, a new U.S. blanket policy? If a government uses chemical weapons on its own people, we are, we will intervene. We have to intervene. Have we seen? Have we set a precedent? I think really that becomes something that the new administration is going to have to wrestle with. And if they do something, 
they're going to take criticism for potentially drawing us into a much greater conflict that would be very ugly. On the flip side, if they don't do anything, they're going to take just as much criticism for kind of doing this one-off attack that didn't really have any backbone to it afterward and still allowed Assad long-term to continue to slaughter his own people. One thing that really has stood out to me in this entire storyline is that it seems like one of the reasons why Trump made this decision was a reaction to images that he saw coming out of Syria, as you've mentioned. Yet he doesn't seem to have shared that same sympathy for welcoming Syrian refugees into the country as reflected by his own policy decisions. So from a policy perspective, what what's going on here? Should we expect to see a change in regards to Trump's stances on, on refugees? I mean, that question's been asked uh, wide and far, uh, really, ever since this strike. Uh, I mean, really, within hours, it was, well, he'll do this, but he won't do that. I would not anticipate that he's going to want to change directions on that based on everything that we've seen and the conversations I've had. And I think one piece to that is there's really no benefit to him doing so other than kowtowing to people he probably doesn't really care about whether or not he pleases. The initial ban or, you know, narrowly defined ban as they tried to frame it, you know, Iraq was on that list when they were talking about refugees back then. He ultimately took Iraq off the list. But the United States also is working with Iraq every day. We have thousands of troops there every day. And I think that was a bridge too far in terms of are you really willing to upset Baghdad to the point where they may or may not be willing to cooperate on taking care of ISIS? How are we going to measure whether or not this was a success? You know, when we look at the short term and the long term, how do we know whether or not we succeeded by striking Syria? I think there's different levels of success. I think at the bare minimum, if Syria does not carry out another nerve agent attack, they will be able to count that as a small W win. I think if there are no chemical weapons attacks at all, that would be a bigger win. I don't know that that's all that practical, especially knowing that there have been numerous attacks and that there were attacks within a year of the Obama agreement with Assad getting assigned back in 20, you know, I think the attack started in 2014. The agreement was signed in late 2013. So that all brings us to this final question, which I think we've answered largely in terms of the law um, and in terms of historical precedent. But the question is, can he do this? Can Trump continue to act without congressional approval? And more importantly, how far can he go? The short answer is yes. And I think we've seen that over, you know, 15 years of war now where Every now and then you just add a new country to the list. Have we ever really talked in any serious way about Yemen? I don't know that it's gotten the discussion it needs to on the Hill. I don't know that it's gotten the discussion it needs to in America. But we have soldiers there. We have, you know, SEALs that are still running raids there very recently. We're still taking casualties there. And we're causing civilian casualties there. So barring some major change in the calculus, like Congress all of a sudden having a big enough majority to say enough's enough and we want to define what an AUMF looks like and we also want to define what the post 9-11 AUMF that has become basically, you know, the crutch that we can use to go into battle wherever we feel we need to is basically ended and we're going to start new ones and have separate conversations going forward. Barring that, I think it's you're going to see a lot more of the same and until there's some reason to... To, to look at the world differently. Okay, Dan, 
thank you so much for being here for this episode. That was not the most cheerful of episodes, but but thank you so much for your insights. Thanks very much for having me. You can follow Dan Lamoth on Twitter at, what's your Twitter handle? Uh, it's uh, Dan Lamoth, D-A-N-L-A-M-O-T-H-E. And you can follow me on Twitter at Allison Mikes. That's Allison, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-M-I-C-H-S. There's an H in there for those of you who have been tweeting at me to tell me you couldn't find me. There you have it. There is the H. And if you guys can do me a big favor and share this, share this episode, share this podcast, share our entire page at wapo.st backslash can he do that. It's really helpful to getting the word out. And I know you guys have been enjoying it. So go ahead and review us on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening. And we will be back next week with another episode. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the smart, creative, and sometimes funny Carol Alderman with design direction from the lovely Rachel Orr. And our logo art is the work of Loren Boglio. With an extra shout out this week to transcription help from Bridget Reed Morosky. Thanks so much for listening.